Welcome to Working on Wellbeing, where we share stories of purpose-driven people doing good in the world. We'll meet change agents, entrepreneurs, students, teachers, and big thinkers to learn about their wow moment and how it got them to where they are today. This show is brought to you by Salary Finance, and I'm your host, Anita Ward, cultural anthropologist and chief development officer at Salary Finance. Hi, everybody. Welcome to Working on Wellbeing and our episodic series, People on Purpose. Our guest today, gosh, he's an iconic entrepreneur. He's a renowned innovator and a leader committed, as all of you know, to where my heart is in putting people first. I am so delighted to introduce the CEO of CoreStream, Mr. Neil Vaswani. Neil, welcome to the show, and thank you so much for joining us today. Hey, thanks, Anita. I uh, appreciate being on board, and it's quite the introduction. Hopefully, I can live up to those flattering uh, adjectives that you put <laughs> before the intro to, to me. If you don't mind, I'm going to share a little bit more of your highlight reel. You know, um, uh, my mother would appreciate if somebody did, and I know you won't. So um, I'm going to—I'll hit on some of the highlights. And I think it was 2006 when you founded CoreStream, and the part that I am most delighted with everybody is that Neil had this vision not to disrupt or, I mean, not to disrupt and disintermediate, but actually to bring value to everybody in the ecosystem around voluntary benefits. So how do you bring value to employers and HR professionals and brokers and employees and create this win-win throughout the ecosystem? And that vision really has paid off because CoreStream now has 2 million, maybe more. Um, but last time I checked, about 2 million people accessing voluntary benefits through the platform. And the system has reconciled over $300 million in premiums. So I would say that this idea of disruption without disintermediation is pretty amazing. But I do feel like I need to tell a little bit formally. You have a BS in entrepreneurship and finance from Babson, which I think is the greatest entrepreneurial. Uh, university in the U.S., but uh, but I am convinced, Neil, that maybe you might have even had more expertise than your professors because I know from knowing a little bit about your story that you've been an entrepreneur forever. So uh, I'm hoping that we can dive a bit into that, take a look at uh, your origin stories, take a look at your entrepreneurial DNA, and maybe start the conversation back in New York City and Talk a little bit about how the family business might have influenced your um, your entrepreneurial spirit, spirit. Okay, sounds good. So, what was it like growing up in New York and being in the around in and around entrepreneurs like your dad? Yeah, so my my you know kind of starting with my dad. My dad has, came over from India uh, with really nothing in his pocket and kind of built up uh, a business from there. A few different businesses where, he, and then he finally arrived. Uh, in the jewelry industry, um, it was, was quite successful. Uh, and so I kind of saw him uh, grow that business as I was young. Uh, and um, and that was in New York, but we traveled. You know, he, he was all over the world. And so we moved around a lot. So I lived in India, lived in Thailand, lived in Dubai, lived in Europe. And, and uh, New York was always home base. Uh, but because he was you know, buying the merchandise in different 
uh, um, countries and, and selling them in other countries. You know, we were constantly on the move. Been all over the place and, and kind of lived everywhere. So I have this, admittedly, sort of this romantic picture, if you will, of New York. I love the city, but I have this this idea of you being, you know, a young kid and you're walking down 47th Street and people are arguing and there's a million different languages and so much passion and emotion. And I wonder how much of that you channeled into what you're doing today. Do you ever find yourself in that place where you're like channeling New York uh, and 47th Street? Well, yeah, it's, it, it, it's you know, when you walk through those two diamond lamps or posts on, on, this, on the street, uh, you, you feel like you're transported to a Middle Eastern bazaar. And, you know, you're, you're dealing with old school Indians and old school Jewish and old school Chinese and old school Russian. It's just in a very archaic industry. And uh, so there's some very interesting lessons that I learned at an early age um, being part of that industry. And kind of seeing it, and then you factor in New York and the culture in New York, and how cutthroat it is. And there's some really powerful lessons that I still carry with me, and that help me um, every day in business. Some learning about what to do, and some learning about what to not do. I'm sure. <laughs> I think back on some of that, and and I didn't know you traveled in all those places. So you know, I'm an anthropologist. So you kind of had me at traveling in different cultures. But that's a, a pretty um, amazing experience for a child as well to get out of that sort of ethnographic or um, ethnocentric focus on where you are. How did traveling influence the way you think? Well, you know, it, it, kind of the whole experience of my father being an entrepreneur and moving around was really interesting to see. You know, I got to see different countries. I got to see him build a business. I got to see the ups and downs. So my father first started the business, it was in New York. He was traveling a lot to Brazil and Hong Kong. And uh, so we ended up living in those places and Thailand for a little bit and Dubai. And I got to see his business kind of go up and down throughout that. And you know, he started off with nothing, built a great business. And then uh, in the 80s, late 80s, early 90s, with the real estate crash in New York, we you know, lost a great deal of wealth in that. And so we kind of had to start over. And so seeing that had a profound effect on me, an impact on me. And you know, it was something that, that caused us to move around a lot. And so you kind of get to feel the ups and downs of an entrepreneur uh, and learning what to do when times are good and, and also learning how to mitigate the, the, the downturns of any business. And, and yet you still wanted to, to be one, right? I heard, and this could be rumor, Neil, but I heard that you were 14 years old when you started your first business. And apparently this could be again, rumor that you were mad at yourself that it took you so long to launch your first business at 14. Is that true? <laughs> well, well, the new the, well, kind of right. A little bit of different sequencing on, on when I started to feel that, but when I was in, you know, I was in boarding school at the time and I, my family went through some financial turbulence. I had to figure out how to support myself. So I started a noodle business where I would bring these noodle packets from uh, uh, Japan, but, but I bought them in the U.S. I bought them in New York. Bring them over to my boarding school and sell them to hungry kids. Like ramen noodles, like those ramen noodle packages. Yeah, kind of, but 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 I got a better kind, not not quite the the, 
the slightly premium product versus the, the, the classic ramen. Yeah, sold them to, to hungry kids that were looking for a meal late at night. And it was a cool, cool business that, that I ended up supporting myself uh, for a couple of years with um, just my personal expenses. And, and I competed against the Chinese. So it was kind of cool, cool dynamic. In a noodle business. <laughs> There's something ironic in there. <laughs> and, and I kind of learned that, you know, when I reflect on the whole thing, I learned some interesting concepts that I carried with me. You know, number one, I had a higher quality product. And I did that by, by actually selling a higher, what I believed was a higher quality product, but also pricing it higher. So that was one interesting advantage that uh, I was able to gain. Uh, the next thing was giving credit. So, you know, young kids didn't have uh, money late at night uh, and the Chinese weren't willing to give credit while I was. So trusting my customer uh, really helped. And then finally providing some promotions, you know, uh, uh, buy for, get one free kind of thing. Uh, whereas the Chinese weren't able to do that. Help me capture more market share. So just some interesting tactics that. So you figured it out early. Yeah, I didn't really understand the concepts as, from a textbook standpoint at, at that time, but uh, just kind of intuitively ran with those strategies and they worked. I think you could have published a book then at 14 because the noodle business and at least those three lessons are pretty fundamental uh, to everything that an entrepreneur does in terms of pricing in the supply chain and listening to your customers and figuring it out at 14. Neil, you, you make the rest of us look pretty bad, but you ended up at Babson, uh, as I said earlier in the intro. And it, how did that shape it? Did you go into Babson thinking, you know, you're either going to join the family business or re-engineer the family business and take it to the next level, or were you going to do the noodle business and take it <laughs> out to a global, a global noodle business? Um, what, what took you to Babson and how did that shape your thinking? Yeah, well, I think that, that it was hard to scale the noodle business to, to support well, uh, anything beyond an allowance for, for a teenager. Um, so yeah, I went to Babson, wanted to start a business. I you know, my dad was kind of reinventing his business at the time. So I wasn't sure if I was necessarily going to go into the family business. But I definitely knew I wanted to be an entrepreneur. I, uh, you know, was um, the president of my high school. And I always felt like I always wanted to go more of an unorthodox route and kind of build my own thing and be my own leader. So that felt right for me. And entrepreneurship was um, very exciting to me and just kind of felt like it was part of my DNA. Obviously, seeing my father build, you know, that uh, our family business growing up. So definitely was excited about it and excited about everything that was going on because it was as we were getting into the dot-com boom. Um, so that was interesting. So I was in, you know, Babson studying that, uh, studying entrepreneurship and finance with the hope of being able to launch my own company. And Babson was great for that because it actually gave you the practical experience of meeting with VCs and, and actually reading case studies and talking to entrepreneurs and having teachers that started great companies. And it was a very practical education uh, that was very helpful. It really provided you with the tools you needed to have a higher level of confidence to, to be an entrepreneur versus having not gone uh, to uh, Babson. So great school, provided a great foundation. But then when I graduated, I did work for my father for probably about a year and a half, two years, and um, at that time, I remember thinking that I was going to be part of the business. And my father pushed me out of the business because he just felt like 
it really wasn't the jewelry business wasn't really growing and wasn't as creative or as dynamic rather um, of an environment. It, it wasn't enough of a dynamic environment for me to thrive. In. Right? He sent me to Boston to learn how to be a great entrepreneur and then to come to the jewelry industry uh, just felt like, you know, kind of hitting a wall very quickly in my career and not necessarily being able to stretch my legs. What an amazing dad. Yeah, and it was, but it was a tough message at the time because I remember kind of feeling like he didn't want me in the business. And so I kind of took it in the wrong way at the time. But in hindsight, he, he reminds me of it as one of the pivotal moments in my life, an important crossroad that kind of set me in motion to start Stream. You know, I, di- I didn't think about it, but you just talked about the dot-com era and I've, we've got a lot of younger listeners, but this this is the OG, this is the original dot-com era. And when I think back on that, Neil, uh, there were, gosh, was it Blue Nile? There were some, there were lots of experimental um, jewelry businesses that were going online at the time too. Did you explore any of that? I did. I, I actually wrote a business plan about an, an e-commerce a jewelry store would have been one of the first few. And I wrote that business plan probably like 21 or 22. And I was strongly considering it. But as I got deeper in the jewelry industry, the more I wanted to, to stay away from it. I mean, it was, like I said, it was a very archaic world that even if I was building an e-commerce company, I would have to deal with some of the characters there. And um, that's kind of what my father said to me. He said, look, I don't think you'll be able to really thrive in this industry. And that's when I turned to him and said, well, I want to give it a shot. And he said, look, try it for six months, see how you feel. And uh, that's what we did. So we spent six months in the business, thinking about the e-commerce thing, writing the business plan, meeting with other people in the industry, watching him manage his interactions with different people in the industry. And it was just awful. The, The person that would win a negotiation was the person that was willing to scream the loudest. Right, that's who would win the negotiation. There was no rationale. There was no logic. And it was a very zero-sum game. Like they, you know, when, when you dealt with uh, suppliers or customers, no one wanted you to make a penny. And so, you know, what, what that caused was people, uh, frankly, having a, there's lots of shenanigans as people are trying to find margin by cheating each other, as opposed to just letting each other generate some profit, right? Every, everybody's got to make money in the equation. Otherwise, it's not sustainable. And so seeing that firsthand and seeing how toxic the interactions were and how zero sum uh, um, the negotiations were just kind of led me to, you know, the concept you brought up earlier, the disruption without disintermediation, which we can talk about later. But but getting back to your question, you know, it's kind of when I decided I, I would exit the jewelry industry and ultimately, um, and when the that was right right around when the dot com boom was starting to peak and and so I decided uh, let me go check this world out. It, it obviously is uh, incredibly dynamic. Yeah, what what led to CoreStream? Because I'm trying to make that connection between jewelry and voluntary benefits. <laughs> it's kind of a leap there. So, what led to CoreStream? So you know, I started working for a new media company that was a startup after I left the diamond industry just to kind of learn about the internet. And and those are the years where I used to get angry at myself. I remember I lived downtown, I would take the subway to Grand Central where, where the office was. And, and every day I'd be upset with myself that I didn't start a company. 
And so I was always looking for the right opportunity. And uh, one of the things I was always intrigued with was trying to figure out a model that truly created value for every constituent or every single person that touched the business model. Um, and I was reading a book, I, was, I, I think I was reading um, What Would Google Do around that time and, and just learning about how Google built their business. And a lot of it was on the backs of creating value for everyone and you know, really kind of lifting all industries and, and enabling everyone to interact with each other at these, you know, by, by leveraging Google. And that, that, that was very compelling for me from a business model. So I always was searching for that. And as I got into the startup world and learned about you know, what was going on in the dot-com boom, um, I had um, gotten into a company that evolved into a flexible spending account debit card company and started to learn about benefits and client needs and the friction with administration and the lack of engagement from employees with benefit packages that employers offered. And, and that ultimately led to core strength. So what was that problem you were trying to solve? Did you fall right away into solving, was it the original thesis around the billing construct? Kind of, you know, what I talked to some large organizations and was doing some research and consulting for some of them, and they were looking to expand their benefits. Specifically, you know, one one that I was talking to was looking to offer um, health club discounts to their employees. And one of their executives was a member of a club called Equinox and was paying a lot more than one of their other competitors' executives was paying. And so um, uh, didn't feel good about that. Complained to HR. Uh, HR had asked me to go look into offering Equinox and other health club discounts uh, to their employees. And so when I went out and did the research, I found that all these health clubs were interested in offering discounted programs uh, to employee populations, but they required payroll deduction as a way to bill their monthly dues. And so that made sense to me. And a lot of it stemmed from the fact that health clubs, number one, wanted to protect their brand. So they were willing to offer their program on a discounted basis, but they wanted payroll deduction to help protect their brand from degradation. Uh, And they also wanted to enjoy the efficiencies of payroll billing as a way to um, drive their costs down so they can pass down some of the savings to the employee. So those are some of the key things that I found. And, and, and when I presented a package of health clubs back to the client uh, to, to set up and offer to their employees, they felt it was great. And they, they, went, they took the package down to the payroll team and said, hey, let's set up payroll slots and uh, billing interfaces with, with these five or six different health clubs. And that's where they ran into issues. And that's where their payroll department threw their hands up and said, well, there's no way we can support, you know, five or six different payroll slots. Our system can't support it. Our technology can't support it, nor do we have the resources and the time uh, to manage this on an ongoing basis. So uh, we can't support all five of these. Pick one. So that was the message to HR. And then HR came back. HR came back to me and said, hey, we're not going to offer any of these. And when they told me the whole story, I said, well, why wouldn't you offer one? Well, they said, if we offered one, we'd have to pick one of these. And because the health club market is so fragmented and focused on a specific region and income bracket, if we were to offer one of these, we would come across seeming partial or biased towards that one segment of the employee population. And because we've got you know, several tens of thousands of employees, spread across 
the country, uh, we can't afford to do that. So it's all or none for us. So unfortunately, because our systems can't offer this or systems can't manage this, we're going to scuttle the program. And that's kind of when the light bulb went off in my head. And I said, well, what if you know I was able to build you guys a single point of integration for you to um, set up on your end that would enable you to access all these vendors, all these different health clubs, but through a single point of integration. And they said, hey, that's great if you can do that and deliver that. And so that's kind of where the initial idea of Corsium came up was essentially an aggregation model to support to, or to enable employers to expand their benefits, but only have to integrate with one versus having to integrate with every single benefit that they selected to offer to their employees. So you had the use case, right? You, had, you knew the problem you were solving, but how did you raise the startup funds? Is Did you, I'm a big fan of, you know, bootstrapping and the bootstrapper's Bible, but how did you approach the in your investment journey? Yeah, so, you know, I, I started to learn about the health club industry a little bit more. And as I did that, I obviously got deeper into benefits and understanding what was going on in that whole ecosystem. What I found was that, there are many other benefit providers that need um, access to employees' payroll slots and would love to be offered and positioned as an employee benefit. And so as I opened up you know, the door to that world, I found all these vendors waiting there, uh, really excited about offering their programs through a platform like I was thinking about building. And so, and, and as I went deeper, I found there were other clients. In fact, any client that had at that time you know, over a few thousand employees had to deal with uh, had to deal with different types of demand within their employee population, different segments of their different demographics within their employee population that needed different benefits to serve their needs. And so I found there was all these clients out there, found that there were all these vendors out there. And the more clients and the more vendors that wanted to partner with each other, you know, really demonstrated the opportunity that was there. And it was kind of all green fields because this was a new concept and just kind of emerging. And so I took, um, wrote a business plan about that, called my buddy Zach and said, Hey, I've got a, I think I've got a cool concept here. And so we just wrote the executive summary and started spamming VCs all across the country. <laughs> and so <laughs> we just took it and ran with it. And, you know, we must have emailed everybody. And, and I think I was like 25, 26 at the time, and he wasn't much older. And so we just wanted to get it in front of a bunch of VECs and, and start to get some meetings and, and uh, see what they had to say in, in response to our, our presentation. That, that's kind of how we got going. So did you found yourself a VC early on then? We, we ultimately went with an angel network, almost like a family fund out of Louisville, uh, for the first round. And, and so the um, kind of a group of angels from Louisville, in fact, uh, Rick Patino's son was on our board. I don't know if you know Rick Patino. Oh, wow. Of course. So we, we ended up randomly tapping into the high network individuals, high network, high net worth other individuals out of Louisville that uh, provided us with our seed funding. And yeah, we got going, you know, we, we, we did meet with a bunch of VCs and got some really good feedback and ultimately narrowed it down to one VC out of upstate New York and uh, the angel fund out of Louisville and then closed with them um, in, in somewhere in 2006. It's amazing. Um, who was your first client, Neil? Was it the Equinox guys? <laughs> 
Well, Equinox was one of our first vendors, for sure. But, you know, when I think of clients, I think of the employer. And the first employer was Applebee's. And I remember, you know, it takes a lot of grit and perseverance in the beginning when no one knows about you, especially in the enterprise world. Because we built a pretty cool product, but nobody knew who we were. And so, you know, while we uh, made it to the finals presentation on a number of cases uh, through an RFP process, we were rarely selected, if ever, because we just didn't have any brand recognition and employers thought what we were doing was cool, but didn't necessarily have a comfort level or trust in us to give us access to employees' paychecks. So it was, it was kind of a, a tough going the first few years, kind of building momentum in the market. Um, but we did, did get a shot at Applebee's. Uh, Applebee's actually chose another vendor. It, you know, they put an RFP, they chose another vendor. Uh, I called them up because I felt like I was pretty close and pushed my way into a lunch meeting, flew to Kansas, met with them. And I don't know why he took my meeting, but I, but I kind of forced the issue <laughs> and, uh, and was able to turn around. Was there a client that gave you like a tipping point? I always think about, you know, you're getting your brand out there. People are getting to know you, Applebee's, you know, you convince them to move forward with you. Was there a point where you, a particular client just kind of made everything change and you thought, oh, that's great. We're, you know, we're now, the, the life is now different. Yeah, I think the first one was, pro. I mean, look, Applebee's put us on the map. Yeah, because, um, you know, Market relevancy was, was is, is probably the most important thing, especially when you're starting a SaaS company. Perhaps even, you know, it, it's paramount. If, if you don't have enough end users or scale, then no one cares about you, right? So you got to establish yourself. And those first few wins are really critical because they start to get you on the map and provide you with the reference point or at least a, a reference for, for new clients to um, validate uh, what you're telling them. And so... Applebee's was that first one and put us on the map and got the ball rolling. So each client was really critical thereafter. But I think the next one that was very meaningful was was Pfizer. And obviously a great brand, great win. We also beat out, you know, the 800 pound gorilla. And it was the first time where we partnered up with a brokerage firm and built out a revenue share model to partner with them. Historically, we were unknowingly trying to disrupt them. And when we started the company, we just, you know, I was 26, 27 years old and did not really understand uh, distribution in this ecosystem. So I just figured, okay, you built a great product and you go pitch it to clients and you win. You know, completely underestimated the stickiness of the relationships that the brokers have and the value that they're having. I just didn't, was not too aware of them. And so that was part of our tough going and building momentum in the first few years is, because we inadvertently were competing with the brokers and um, we really needed to figure out how to align ourselves with them if we wanted to scale distribution. And Pfizer was the first client that we won where we tried that and that worked really well. Didn't you partner also with ADP? Uh, I know you've got a pretty amazing AD, uh, API adapter for ADP too and that you're leveraging that technology pretty significantly. Maybe we could talk a bit about what that looks like. So, you know, when we first started the business, the first few years, we grew seventy uh, from zero to 75,000 end users. Right? That was probably our first four or five years uh, when we tried to go direct to clients. And, and like I said, we were inadvertently disrupting the brokers. And so we pivoted 
uh, when we landed Pfizer, uh, and we did another VC round on the back of that pivot uh, from a company, a fund called Abundance out of New York. And um, we took down additional capital to really pivot the business and focus on a broker partnership strategy, which requires a revenue share with the broker. And that worked really well. So for the next five years, or three years rather, we went from 75,000 users to 750,000 users. Wow. Okay. Win-win really works. <laughs> exactly. Exactly. And so you gave up some margin, found the distribution model that enabled the existing yeah. incumbents, and that worked really well. So we saw 10x the growth over the next few years. Wow. And then we pretty ambitious group here. And so we still wanted to unlock faster growth. And the challenge with the broker community is that it's very fragmented. And even even in the big shops and some of these large organizations like Acquisure and so forth, they're incredible companies, but they've essentially rolled up mom and pop agencies over time to be part of the overall ecosystem. So their producers still have a very entrepreneurial mindset. So it's very challenging for the mothership of that um, or the headquarters of that uh, that brokerage house to mandate what each producer is going to sell and how they're going to sell it. Right? Just a challenge based on, on the cultural values of rolling up entrepreneurs into that consolidation model. And so um, what we did well on the broker side, we just found it difficult to scale that distribution because essentially would have to go and build relationships with every producer out there to, to build a relationship with each and every one of them. And, and brokers take their business very seriously, their clients very seriously. And so if they're going to want, if they're going to allow you to work with them on a specific client, they really want to get to know you. And so that's a challenging business model to scale. It just takes time. And so as we were thinking about moving faster, we were looking for distribution partners that had more control over their sales force. And then the second phenomena we, we were observing in the market was that benefits administration platforms were expanding the types of benefits they offered. And there was starting to be some overlap between the benefits administration platforms and, and core street. And so, so we decided, instead of competing with them, we decided to enable the Ben Admin platforms. And so we found ADP that kind of fit the profile of both, you know, company that had a benefits administration platform that wanted to expand into voluntary number one, and number two, control of their sales force. And so um, 2016, and we reached out to ADP, took us about a year or so uh, to work through their process. We won that bid and we were selected as um, their exclusive voluntary benefits provider for their large market clients. And that worked really well. And so from 2017 to uh, 2019, you know, we went from 750,000 users to 1.5 million. So it added more kind of fuel to the distribution model and further validated that, you know, uh, disruption without disintermediation theme, if you will. Yeah, I find that philosophy so amazing. And the more that I learn about you and CoreStream, at first I thought, why is this CoreStream's purpose? But now as you talk through the whole story, by adding value and not disintermediating the distribution partners, not, you know, not disintermediating the broker channel and trying to figure out how you build value into each step. I mean, that's the, the secret sauce that CoreStream and you do so well. 
it's an amazing lesson that I think we could all learn. And I think it's very foundational to business. But you know what, Neil, it strikes me as quite a juxtaposition to uh, winning the deal because you didn't scream the loudest. You know, it's um, really quite the opposite, right? I, you know, we all carry our lessons in different ways, but it seems to me that you went to the opposite end of the continuum in figuring out how do you bring value to everybody along the way? So congratulations on that. What What is your current business model? Maybe we should talk a bit. I don't know that people completely understand, you know, a, a price per employee per month model versus a, a SaaS model. And so I, I heard you mention it just a moment ago. Maybe we could share a bit with our listeners about how CoreStream, how it works. Yeah, and, and just to your point uh, that you just touched on around you know, screaming the loudest and the lessons learned, it was, you know, what I witnessed in the jewelry industry was this incredibly corrosive culture <clears throat> that I spoke about earlier about not wanting your partners, your customers, or your uh, suppliers to make money. Uh, and it was so zero sum that the whole industry was held back. And so that definitely fueled me to find a far more inclusive business model that really leveraged technology to empower, enable, and really to be accretive to each constituent within the ecosystem, even though they might be a competitor so or a pseudo competitor. So that's that, that's certainly a, a lesson that helped me build a business model. But to answer your question about the, the current business model, what we do is actually do not charge the employer any fees. So there is no PPM or subscription fee uh, that you might typically see with a SaaS company or SaaS model. Instead, we leverage the transactional revenue that comes from employees participating in these programs. We leverage that transactional revenue that that comes from the commissions associated with um, the programs that we offer. So every time an employee enrolls in one of the benefits, we're compensated with either insurance commissions or through technology fees. And we use those revenue streams from the vendor side to offset our cost of development, of administration, of our overhead, and to ultimately generate revenue and profit for the organization. Which makes that other uh, leg in the stool, I forget how many legs we're up to now in your model with the win-win, but so the employer wins, the employee wins, there's no fees to either one of them. And you're working through a channel where you're bringing benefit to that channel as well. So that's a a remarkable model, Neil. It's um, amazing. You have four constituents. So you have the employer and we're enabling them to offer more benefits to engage their employees, right? Um, For the employee, you're enabling them to enjoy value propositions that are not available to them in the retail market or as an individual, right? For the vendor, you're providing access to distribution, you know, a, a, a captive audience and the efficiencies of payroll, payroll billing. And then the broker side, you're helping them play offense and defense. So <clears throat> offense by enabling them to offer their clients more and, and offering a high-tech solution to their clients, expanding on their services they provide, but also play defense while keeping their competitors out. So it is um, you know, very inclusive about for these four different parties, employer, employee, vendor, broker. And, uh, and I believe that's a large part of our success. 
And how you select those partners is also pretty significant, I imagine. So what kind of advice would you give entrepreneurs as they're building their partner strategies? Are you uh, looking for people who share your values or how do you select partners or investors or even employees? What does that look like in your model? Selecting vendors, initially, we you know were a lot more loose and fast about working with vendors, trying to find, as long as we have, you know, two real criteria, right? Number one, that it is, um, the vendor was willing to offer a value proposition that is not available to the general public, right? That's critical because that allows us to turn around and position that offering as an employee benefit, right? Otherwise, it's just an advertisement. Like, why are you getting access to this program if you're an employee of Pfizer or Applebee's? you're getting access because you're part of your employer's offering this. And why is it branded as a benefit is because you're getting something that you can't get on your own, right? That's the bottom line. Otherwise it's an advertisement. So we're looking for vendors that offer that. Number two, offered payroll reduction as a means to bill employees. We felt payroll was really critical for engaging employees and creating the cost efficiencies for the vendor to be able to pass deeper savings back to the end user. And we saw that over and over again. And so we really focused on products that employees needed on an everyday basis, kind of staple insurance products in the initial get-go, you know, products like auto and home and pet insurance and things of that nature. You know, as we grew as an organization, our curation process became far more robust and focuses on many things. Today, you know, we're really zeroed in on uh, the demand uh, and mapping to a demographic within the employer population, making sure that it actually creates value for the employee by enriching and protecting their life and their livelihood. And so it, that's a pretty wide uh, definition. So a lot of things can fit in that. Everything from protecting their financial well-being to protecting their pets to enabling them to buy, to get access to their Netflix service at uh, a better price than they can get on their own. So it can be quite expansive, but we look for, you know, providers that provide high quality service that are, are, are not presenting any product that could harm employees or could be perceived as harmful. Uh, and again, something that's going to be far more competitive and attractive to the end user versus what they can get on their own. And we're, we're super proud to be a partner of yours. Appreciate it. But, you know, Neil, this is a podcast often where we talk about financial well-being. And you've shared, you know, the ups and downs of your family business. But did you have a personal sort of wow moment about well-being or financial well-being along the way that uh, you'd like that you could share with everybody? Sure. Yeah. I mean, I mentioned when um, our family went through financial financial challenges, you know, as my father was an entrepreneur, that taught me a lot about you know, saving and being secure uh, from a financial standpoint. Just how important security was. You know, you think of, look, money's not going to make us happy, but not having it makes happiness very challenging. And so having the security to know that you've got a place to sleep and you can support, you know, education and healthcare and the livelihood of your family is paramount. Um, so that that was obviously kind of my first realization uh, or, or experience around the financial wellness side. I think over the last two years with COVID, yeah, it, 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 it's definitely resonated 
or reconfigured at least my framework for how I live my life. And so when I think about well-being now, I've made a lot of adjustments in my life in terms of how I balance the different aspects of my life. And so I built a framework where I have, uh, it's like a triangle, if you can follow me visually um, or imagine it. And there's a triangle. On the left-hand side, I have my professional being. On the right-hand side, I have my personal being. And then on the top, I have my family. And the top uh, um, kind of angle on my family. And so what I've, what I've realized during COVID is that I need to be, in order to be my optimal self at any of those, I have to find the equilibrium and the balance of being right in the middle. And so that work-life balance has become even more critical to me because if I skew too far in any one direction, I'm actually suboptimal in all three. And so as I found that balance, and a lot of it was, you know, COVID forces you to, well, you know, you couldn't travel for a while and, and you spent more time with the kids and you found different activities to do. And it just kind of, it, it, it forced you to reassess how you were living your life and to find a better way. And so uh, that's kind of what I came out of it, you know, in general about my well-being, my framework. And so I really strive for that balance and impress that uh, as a cultural value at CoreStream. And that very much extends into what we offer uh, to, to our employees is helping them kind of manage their work-life balance. And that's changed so dramatically with people working from home that. Um, you know, employers really had to rethink the types of benefits they were providing to the end user because their needs had changed. Uh, then you add in the financial angle of people losing their jobs and you know, losing time at uh, you know, potentially hours at work or, and then being furloughed and the kind of financial mess they were in and having to raid their 401ks. And that's, um, you know, where your program really solved an important need was providing employees with a very reasonably priced credit facility as a substitute alternative from all the other toxic stuff that's out there in the retail market. So um, that's kind of how uh, my journey on, on, on the uh, well-being and then the, you know, what we saw in the last couple of years on the financial side. I appreciate that. I think um, Maslow's probably turning over in his grave because I think you just reinvented that. So that's pretty amazing. <laughs> what do you think, uh, Neil? What's the next next look like? What's that big challenge of humanity that we need to solve for? You seem to be figuring out how to make win-wins across the board. Do you have any big hairy goals that you think this is, you know, this is what we all need to get together to solve for? Yeah, I mean, look, there's obviously that's a pretty broad question. I've got a list of business plans that I want to write and start, but I'm so laser focused on core stream and, and really so I kind of live, breathe and sleep that. And and so my answer is going to be skewed to to our business model. And you know, our goal here and our vision here in terms of the next neck is next next is to really digitize a, a very highly personalized experience that is equivalent to somebody sitting down with their guidance counselor to help them map out their life and, and understand what they will need to buy from an insurance standpoint uh, and from a financial wellness standpoint to support that livelihood. And so being a guide to the end user, but through a digital experience is, is, is really the next next for core stream. You know, that, that's really what we're zeroing in on here is to enable the employee to, write, to purchase the right benefit at the right time, and then making sure that um, they're not purchasing the wrong benefits. 
And so I think that's a really important part of what we do because so many people in our industry are really aligned to just selling, 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 selling to employees. And, and we're also, we're looking to guide employees. And so uh, building that, that platform that provides that hyper-personalization to tell you what you should buy, what you shouldn't buy. And then once you buy it, to teach you how to utilize it, you know, really kind of critical parts of our vision. Well, Neil, I look forward to that CoreStream Digital Sherpa. I think it's pretty exciting and I'd love to have one of those along the way. So I am super grateful for your time today. Thank you for being this authentic person and for sharing your origins and for sharing all the remarkable work that CoreStream is doing. And I wish you and CoreStream the, the best. Thank you for your partnership. And where can people find CoreStream? Would you share if they're, you know, if they want to learn more, where should we send them? Sure. You can, you can visit CoreStream.com, C-O-R-E-S-T-R-E-A-M.com. And you can obviously check out my LinkedIn profile and connect with me. Love to connect with people. And yeah, happy to chat with anyone if they want to learn more. Great. Thanks for everything, Neil. And thanks for joining us today. And until next time, everybody, keep working on your well-being. Thanks for joining us for today's episode of Working on Wellbeing, brought to you by Salary Finance. I'm Anita Ward. At Salary Finance, our mission is to improve the financial health of working Americans by providing access to socially responsible financial products in the workplace. You can learn more about how you can partner with us to help improve your employees' financial well-being at salaryfinance.com. Don't forget to subscribe or follow so you don't miss an episode.